everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. Today we have an ESC wrap-up show with Dr. Sarah Hudson. Sarah is a cardiology trainee from the UK and she's very active on Twitter and she published a top 10 list of trials from the ESC that was very popular. And for those of you not on Twitter and for those of you on Twitter, uh, we run through that list. Sarah also, at the end of the podcast, discusses three outstanding presentations that she saw at the ESC. And remember, all of the ESC content is still available on their website uh, for free, so you can go ahead and read, stroke, listen to everything. Please feel free to subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice. And I'm very grateful for the lovely reviews that people have been leaving on iTunes and other platforms Uh, Leaving a good review really does help us reach new audience members. So thank you very much indeed. And I hope you enjoy the show. So maybe we could start, Sarah, by you introducing yourself for the heart audience. Hey, my name's Sarah Hudson. I'm a cardiology registrar at the Bristol Heart Institute um, and the section editor for cardiology in focus of BMJ Heart. And during the recent ESC, you were very active on Twitter and you published a list of top 10 trials to emerge from that conference that was wildly popular, loads and loads of retweets. And I thought it'd be really interesting to get you on the podcast to run through some of those, if that's okay. Thank you. I'd be delighted to. And I'd also just like to start by thanking the ESC team for putting together such an amazing digital experience. It was amazing, wasn't it? For those of us who uh, are on social media and were able to log in and follow it. I mean, how did you find the whole thing? Uh, doing it remotely as opposed to to being there in person? I think I actually managed to attend far more talks than I usually would because there was no getting lost between rooms. Mm. Um, but obviously it was it was sad to not see the people that you normally see at these conferences. Mm. And I think they had something like 100,000 or 150,000 people. You may know the numbers better than I do, but compared yeah, to the normal I- of about 35,000 in person. Yeah, so Paris last year had uh, 33,500 participants and this year digitally they had uh, 116,000 delegates. Wow, wow. I mean, I guess obviously it's free. It was free this year, so that's going to make a difference. But even so, um, I wonder what's going to happen next year, whether there'll be a hybrid. Uh, but maybe we can talk about that at the end. So why don't we kick off with your with your top 10 in, in the order of your choice, Sarah? Thank you very much, James. Well, I'd like to start off with the trials that can be put into clinical practice immediately. The first trial I'd like to talk about is one called the REALITY trial, which is a French-Spanish randomised control trial that looked to answer a question that I'm sure lots of us have pondered in the past, which is when do you transfuse a person who's had an MI? Do you transfuse when their haemoglobin is less than 8, less than 9, less than 10? Um, And this RTC looked at patients who'd had an MI who weren't shocked, who didn't have any massive bleeding, and questioned whether they should have a restrictive strategy, so only transfuse if they had a haemoglobin of less than or equal to 8 grams per deciliter, transfusing up to a target of 8 to 10, or whether you would be better off going for a liberal transfusion strategy, so transfuse if the haemoglobin is less than or equal to 10 grams per deciliter with a target of greater than 11. And what this trial showed was that the restrictive strategy was non-inferior in presenting 30-day MACE, it saved blood and it was safe. So my take home message from that really was that post-acute MI in general, you should only transfuse if the patient's haemoglobin is less than or equal to eight grams per deciliter. And is that trial published so far, Sarah? Um, the, it is not currently published. Okay, but there is a, a, a trial summary. And what I'll do is I'll put a link to your tweet 
thread so people can click through and actually get to the various websites where the slides are located and the summaries are located. Fantastic. So as you say, immediately actionable. Um, I guess some people would like to see, probably all of us would like to see the, the whole thing um, published, but I mean, it tends to back up what I would do anyway, I think. Um, try and avoid transfusion where you can. But if it Absolutely. is less than eight, then you should feel free to transfuse. Yeah. And of course, the, the presentation itself is still available on the ESE Congress website if people wanted to go and watch the presentation. Perfect. And I presume that's the case for all of these uh, it will these be trials. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And what was the second uh, trial you wanted to talk about? So the second trial I wanted to talk about was the popular TAVI trial. Again, something that I know lots of people are confused about, including myself, is post-TAVI. Uh, should you have dual antiplatelets or a single antiplatelet? Mm -hmm. um, I think historically most people have been treating it a bit like PCI and have gone for aspirin for three months. And popular TAVI was a European RTC of 665 patients looking at this question and randomised patients to either have aspirin alone or aspirin and clopidogrel for three months. And what it showed was um, aspirin alone was non-inferior for cardiovascular mortality, stroke and MI, and unsurprisingly was superior in terms of there being less bleeding. So it suggests that aspirin alone is a better strategy than aspirin and clopidogrel post-TAVI. And this trial is published, I can see, on your slide, um, on your on your tweet slides yeah. in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's called, as you it's say, indeed. Popular TAVI, all in capitals. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. And that certainly is immediately actionable. It'll be interesting to see how that gets incorporated into the next lot of, of ESC guidelines. Uh, where should we go next? So I'd like to go back to something very old, if that's okay now, James. I'd mm. like to go back to digoxin, digoxin, which has been in use since 1785. Um, and a team from Birmingham were looking at rate control in uh, older adults. So they were looking at patients who were 60 or older with permanent AF and breathlessness of NYHA class 2 or above and need a rate control for AF. And they randomized 160 patients to either bisoprolol or digoxin. And their primary outcome was a quality of life primary outcome, which there was no significant dif difference. But they found that there were significantly lower adverse events in digoxin. So they came to the conclusion that digoxin could be considered as a first line approach for rate control in the elderly. Okay. And that's called the RATE AF trial. And again, RATE AF trial. Again, not published yet, but lots of um, write up on the various news websites. And as you say, the slides available. So there might be life in digoxin yet. It won't go away. No. <laughs> okay. Um, very good. Where should we go next for your number four? Um, shall we go to another old drug? Mm -hmm. um, shall we go to colchicine? Yes, um, let's do that. Col colchicine, there was the Ladoco 2 trial, which is published already in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this was looking at colchicine 0.5 milligrams once a day in patients with coronary uh, chronic coronary disease. Um, and it met its primary endpoint of it compared to placebo decreasing death, MI, uh, stroke and ischemia driven revascularization after a medium follow up of nearly 29 months. Um, so it was 5,522 patients. It suggests that there's definitely a role for colchicine. And the amazing thing is that because it's such an old drug, the BNF indicative lift price for it is just £2.29 for a whole month's supply. And so these are people with, in old language, stable coronary artery disease, now now Indeed. rebadged as chronic coronary disease uh, by the yeah. ESC. Okay, and this was presumably on top of standard medical care. It was on top of standard medical care. 
Interesting. I wonder how it works. Is there any idea? Have you come across any ideas as to what it might be doing? Um, I'm afraid I don't have that insight to share. Yeah. Okay. Well, I need to go away and read the paper. That is out now in the New England Journal of Medicine. Okay. It makes a change from the very expensive drugs that we might be talking about soon. But uh, where next? Um, Well, since you mentioned more expensive (laughs) modern drugs, shall shall we move forward to the SGLT2 inhibitors? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, So there were two trials that came out at the SE Congress that covered them. Um, One of them was following on from DAPA-HF last year. And this was the Emperor Reduced trial already published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, this was looking at empagliflozin versus placebo in addition to standard heart failure therapy. Um, it had a primary endpoint, com- composite endpoint of cardiovascular death or hospitalization for worsening heart failure that it met. So um, obviously it's a trial itself. It was interesting, the Emperor Reduced trial. And from my point of view, I thought the meta-analysis that's been published in The Lancet, which combines the results of DAPA, HF and Emperor Reduced was really helpful. It looked at that, that gives a combined analysis of 8,474 8, patients. And overall, there's a 14% reduction in cardiovascular death with a P of 0.027, which is just amazing. Mm. So these are definitely exciting drugs. SGLT2. Okay. And that was again on top of, I'm assuming, impeccable standard heart failure treatment. Indeed, in addition to standard heart failure therapy, and it's worth noting that it's not currently licensed for this in the UK yet. Okay, interesting to see what, again, what will happen to the guidelines. Um, I'm conscious that we're rushing through these, and obviously I I strongly encourage people to go to the original slides and also to the published papers where they're available to get more info. But you're right, these are real blockbusters, aren't they, that came out of the the digital ESC. Okay, are we on Um, SGLT2s again? Yep, just very briefly going to touch on DAPA-CKD, another randomized control trial. And this was looking at dibagliflozin in patients with CKD with or without type 2 diabetes. Um, and what this shows is that the, the use of dibagliflozin significantly decreased the risk of kidney failure, cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization. So an, another uh, indication for this group of drugs. And that was called DAPA-CKD? DAPA-CKD. And again, I can see from your tweets here that it's not yet published, but there is a press release on the ESC website which uh, goes into uh, detail about the about the trial. Okay, where are we going to for number? I've lost count. Is it number seven? I've lost count too, to be honest. <laughs> um, shall Shall we go to a very twenty twenty problem of COVID nineteen? Yes. So, yes. Uh, obviously, this has affected everyone's practice, and one of the big controversies has been around ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers in COVID patients. Mm. Um, and the Brazilians managed to put together a randomised study of six hundred and fifty nine patients. These are all patients co- hospitalised with COVID nineteen. And they compared temporarily stopping ACE and ARBs for 30 days versus continuing them. They excluded, obviously, hemodynamically unstable patients. And they found that the all-cause mortality at 30 days was the same. So their conclusion was that in patients hospitalized with COVID-19, suspending ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers for 30 days did not impact the number of days alive out of hospital. So it suggests that it is safe to continue these drugs. Did they? Do you know if they published the indication for the why the patients were on these? Could they have been for hypertension, or were they all for heart failure, or is it not not clear yet? Um, I'm afraid I can't recall, um, and I don't believe. The, I think I just at the point that I did the tweet the summary. I think 
I'd watched the presentation mm. and um, there was an ESE press summary, but no formal publication. Okay, interesting. But that's called the Brace Corona Trial. Yeah. And as you say, there is a press release and the slides are still available on the site. So the message seems to be we don't need, in patients that are hemodynamically stable anyway, we don't need to stop ACE inhibitors or ARBs in patients who present with COVID in hospital. Yes, that was the outcome of the presentation. Okay. Uh, next one. Uh, next one, slightly niche, just very briefly to touch upon the fact that there is a new treatment option for hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. Um, the trial was Explorer HCM, and the drug is called Mavacamptin. It's a first-in-class targeted inhibitor of cardiac myosin, um, and that trial is currently published. In the Lancet, I think. Yeah, I can see that in the Lancet. Um, yeah, this is really interesting, and in fact, I, I've got... Um, friend of the show Lynn Williams is, is going to come onto the podcast soon to, to talk about an update in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and particularly this drug uh, Mavacam10 as you say Mavacam10. Um, uh, there aren't many good treatments for this disease that affect outcomes and prognosis so this is certainly interesting and it's as you say in the Lancet right now. It's well tolerated, good safety profile and uh, there were a number of improvements in NYHA class, exercise performance, etc., and also reductions in, in relevant biomarkers. So big news in the HCM world. Uh, any more on your list, Sarah? Um, so I've also got on my list the East AFNET 4 trial, which has been published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, this was looking at patients with atrial fibrillation of less than one year duration and cardiovascular disease and whether they either received early rhythm control or usual care. 2,789 patients with a mean follow-up of just over five years. Um, the primary endpoint was a composite of death from cardiovascular causes, stroke or hospitalisation with worsening heart failure or acute coronary syndrome. And what this found was that early rhythm control was associated with a lower risk um, than usual care. So it suggests that maybe we should be thinking more of rhythm control. Which is not really how the guidelines are set up at the moment, is it? Um, there seems to be you know, an emphasis on, on rate control and anticoagulation as first lines. So like you say, a very interesting trial and we'll have to see um, again how that changes the guidelines, uh, whether that's going to be incorporated or not or whether there needs to be a larger study. Do you remember how many patients were in that trial? Um, the 2,789. Okay, so reasonably big for an AF trial. Interesting. And that one's out in the New England Journal of Medicine, as you say. Okay, where's next? So um, the final uh, trial that I put on my list was the HOME PE trial. Mm. Um, interested both cardiologists and those doing front door medicine. And they were looking at the uh, simplified PESI or the Hestia scores to identify patients who could have early discharge and home management of their pulmonary embolisms. And the conclusion was that uh, both scores enable more than a third of pulmonary embolism patients to be managed at home with a low rate of complications. Interesting. Okay. And that one, again, is not published. Um, it's called a mm -hmm. home PE trial, but there is yeah. a press release on the on the ESC website. Again, I'll put links in the show notes. Fantastic. So I think we've covered a huge <laughs> range of different <laughs> areas of cardiology there. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about um, based on um, your experience of the ESC? Yes. Could I just briefly highlight three other presentations I'd thoroughly recommend people to watching? Mm. 
Um, the first uh, was by Professor Paul Friedman, who gave the Paul Huguenoff Lecture for Innovation. Um, this is just an absolutely stunning lecture. Obviously, as a top or NHS digital fellow, I'm quite interested in the digital thing, but I think anyone will just be astounded by it. It's only 21 minutes long, goes through an awful lot of things, but it talks particularly about how AI can be used to read ECGs um, with talk about how they an, an AI can read an ECG to diagnose and possibly even predict left ventricular systolic dysfunction, mm. how AI can tell you the, 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 gen, the, sorry, the sex of the patient, um, and also how it can be used to identify AF in patients who have paroxysmal AF from their ECGs that are in normal sinus rhythm. It's just a, a mind-blowingly interesting talk. It is, and I'm, I'm familiar with those those papers. Um, and again, I'll link to those because I think most of those have actually been published in very high-impact journals, haven't they? Indeed. Yeah, no, it's really fascinating. The signals that are in the ECG that the human eye or human brain doesn't appreciate. But if you train a model with thousands of patients with those conditions, you can uh, the machine can pick out those those predictive factors. Fantastic. My second highlight was uh, an absolute gallop through the evidence behind all the traditional heart failure treatments um, done by Professor Mark Pfeffer of Harvard Medical School, um, which was not just good for making you think about the evidence between the drugs and behind the drugs that we use all the time, but also for thinking about how uh, trial endpoints were, were chosen and how the trials support each other. So that, that was a great lecture and only 12 minutes long. And there was a lovely timeline slide I saw where he, where he named the kind of pivotal trials, didn't he, for each of the medications yes. all the way up to the, the current day with the ones we've just been mentioning. Yeah. Um, and then I guess the final thing that I'd recommend uh, is Professor Stuart Pocox uh, of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine um, gave a talk entitled, Is the Obsession with P less than 0.05 Justified? And uh, it was just brilliant for making us think about how we interpret the results of trials, which is obviously incredibly important to our practice. Um, and he summarised that the historical obsession with this arbitrary cutoff is a huge disservice to mankind. And this also prompted an awful lot of Twitter uh, discussion. Mm, absolutely. And we've we've covered this um, area before with Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter, who um, I think was also uh, an, uh, an author on a, a letter to nature suggesting exactly the same, that um, if you choose an arbitrary cutoff, you often end up throwing a lot of the babies out with the bathwater. You know, trials that are almost significant are completely rejected, uh, whereas what we should be doing is using some kind of Bayesian approach to go back and integrate the new information into the body of what's already been done before uh, and then take a view from the overall body of the literature, not just each individual trial where possible. Um, so, yeah, that was a fantastic talk. I, I caught that one as well. Brilliant. Anything else you wanted to mention, Sarah? You became a Twitter overnight star, I think, during the ESC. <laughs> I, I I think that the ESC was just a brilliant congress and all of the talks are still available. Um, so if people haven't watched them, I'd really recommend going to watch some of them while they're still there. And they are they it was free. I think you probably still need to to register, don't you, to get access to the talks, but there is no charge to watch them once you're registered. No. And the brilliant thing of watching them in retrospect is of course that if you're a trainee like me and it takes you longer to grasp some of the concepts, you can always pause them and replay bits as you go through. Fantastic, brilliant. Well thanks ever so much for your time, uh, Sarah, and I will 
point links to your Twitter handle and also the thread uh, where you describe the 10 trials in detail so people can go away and find them themselves. Thank you very much, James. Thank you.